0: Hi there. Welcome to the Jeff MacArthur podcast for Tuesday, September the 8th, 2020. Coming up, we'll talk to Dr. Nadia Alam, the former head of the Ontario Medical Association, about kids heading back to school and concerns over the rise in COVID numbers. Also, could Toronto Club sneaky D's be turned into a condo? And Paul Delaney joins us to talk about your brain on space. All of that coming up. On the podcast right now, the province has put a pause on any reopenings for the next four weeks, all because of the latest spike in COVID numbers—nearly 400 new cases in the last two days. Let's welcome in our friend, Dr. Nadia Alam, former head of the Ontario Medical Association and family doctor, who joins us now here on Global News Radio. Dr. Alam, good afternoon.
1: Good afternoon. How are you doing?
0: Well, I'm okay, thanks. Uh, first of all, I wanted to get your reaction to this announcement, putting a pause on further reopenings. I think some doctor might argue that maybe we've reopened too much, such as in-house dining and uh, nightclubs, that's maybe uh, led to this uh, spike in numbers.
1: Certainly that's the concern, right? It's, uh, we know that the numbers are growing in the younger demographics, the 20- to 39-year-olds. Um, and, and because of that, you, you worry, right? You worry about what's being reopened, what are the activities that are happening. Is there, is there still the strict adherence to social distancing that we saw earlier in the pandemic? Is there still a strict adherence to masking and, and trying to limit social bubbles? Is that being adopted straight across the board in all settings? It honestly doesn't sound like it is anymore. And I know that the second wave is coming. We, Most physicians feel that this is inevitable. The question becomes, is this rise in numbers that we've been seeing the last couple of days, is that related to the reopening? Is that related to the second wave? It, it's hard to tell at this stage. But yeah. I know a lot of us are watching
0: well, nearly 400, as I mentioned, COVID cases in the last 48 hours in the mm-hmm. province. Uh, I think we're up 25% overall in the country. Dr. Teresa Tam, commenting on that yesterday, said that it's a concern. Yeah. Do you share that concern?
1: I do. I do. And, and I'm watching the numbers very carefully because much like many, many other parents around the province, I'm thinking about school reopening and what this means for my kids, what this means for my elderly parents, how do I navigate this as a healthcare worker and a parent with young kids and, and a family? It's, it's become a very complex situation, and I, I don't have the answers, and that's what worries me.
0: Well, let me ask you straight up uh, with these numbers as they sit here today should kids, do you think, in this province be, although it's a staggered start, should kids be returning to school today?
1: What I've noticed about the school reopening plans is that it really varies, not just from region to region and board to board, but within and across schools. And while I understand that schools should be responding to local community um, needs and numbers, I, I do wish there was a bit more coherence to the reopening plans. I wish there was information as a parent, right? I wish there was information about... What do we do in an outbreak scenario? What do we do as a parent? How do we keep everybody safe as a parent? If the numbers continue to rise, what is our threshold? Are are we to determine that on our own? I wish there was just a bit more coherence in the plans. And...
0: I don't know, Jeff. Well, you know, Doctor, I honestly feel and I sympathize with a a lot of what you're saying, and I think a lot of the audience does as well, because, you know, we've been asking this question for the last couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. What exactly constitutes a second wave? I mean, we're not getting numbers from our chief medical officer in the province. Uh, we really have no idea. I mean, 400 new cases in the last two days seems like a pretty big uh, spike and obviously is concerning. And does this mean it's a, a second wave is here? Are we on the brink of it? Uh, I think people just are kind of left in the dark right now trying to figure out these numbers for themselves.
1: You're right, because if it's a second wave, then we hunker down and... Um, and we start enforcing strict adherence and all that. We pause reopening, all of that. If it's a spike in numbers because of the reopening, then maybe we need to go back to doing that widespread education again on social distancing, on, on wearing masks, on hand hygiene, on limiting your social bubbles, getting those messages out again.
0: Okay, is it that sort of interrupter? I wanted to ask you because the premier was pretty emphatic during the press conference that we just carried here on the air that what we need is the police to get in and start uh, fining uh, people for not adhering to their social bubbles and to a lot of the uh, distancing uh, requirements. Is it enforcement that's needed? Because it seems to me, and I think a lot of other people, we've been talking about hand-washing continuously for half a year now
1: and that's true um i'm hesitant to speak for the police i I know that they they have so many things that they need to pay attention to to add another thing on their list seems unfair but i i know that you know what i think that they we should be enforcing it we should be as as a parent as, as someone who has parents who are elderly and who are who are very vulnerable um I would want police officers to, to be able to have the right to enforce some of these bylaws to say gatherings that are, that are far too big and that pose a risk, pose a risk to the entire community, not just to themselves. And the question becomes, though, what happens in establishments where, like you remember, the, the strip club in Toronto, that made big news because there was a huge outbreak from that. Right? What what can we do about situations like that, which are also driving some of the higher numbers? How much can the business owners do? How much can police officers do in that scenario? None of that is really clear.
0: And we add to that, of course, uh, back to school. That begins today uh, in the province, and we're just coming off a long weekend and waiting for those uh, numbers in the next uh, week and a half, two weeks. Dr. Lam, appreciate the time as always. Thank you so much for joining us. All right, take care. Dr. Nadi Alam is the former head of the Ontario Medical Association. In the last a week and a half or so on the show, we've been talking about, sadly, the closing of some fairly iconic businesses and restaurants in the Toronto area, in the city of Toronto, and we could now soon lose another iconic location. Sneaky D's, the beloved live music event, might actually fall victim to the other danger that begins with a C. That's right, we're not talking COVID or Corona this time. We're actually talking condos. Eric Alpers, our music expert, and he joins us for more on this on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Eric, good afternoon.
2: Good afternoon. I think I finally got the smoke out of my clothes from the last time I was at Sneaky D's about 12 years ago.
0: (laughs) Well, let's talk about (laughs) Sneaky D's uh, just for a minute here. What made or what makes Sneaky D's such a special place?
2: I think every generation that grows up in Toronto has their own version of what Sneaky D's meant to them. With um, myself growing up um, in the 80s and 90s, it was seeing artists like Arcade Fire or Broken Social Scene or at least, you know, that version of those bands before they made it big. And it's a great place to go just to hang out and get a lot of cheap food which you know in the city of toronto is kind of rare but i think people tend to forget all local music is so important because all superstars start off being local in order to graduate to the arena you've got to play the these small clubs for the most part with only a handful of people and generating that support and getting that practice in with Um, people that may not care about you so much in the beginning, except for maybe a handful of your family and friends, that stuff is vital to actually getting better um, and having these superstar artists that we know and love uh, coming out of Canada.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking uh, Bono has commented on that before uh, playing small clubs and particularly uh, here in Toronto. It's like, you know, we'd play and 80 people would show up and I know that because I've, uh, you know, talked to now 15,000 people that were at that show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
2: you you know, when when you go through the list of the venues that have closed in Toronto from the Calac lounge to the silver dollar, the Hulkston soy bomb, and potentially now with sneaky D's there's a large part of the music community that goes along with that. And with, you know, and it's not just the musician it's the people that help out and manufacture the merchandise it's the restaurants, it's the parking it's the whole economic system that values having live music in the city of Toronto that's also affected when a venue closes down like this.
0: Sure, okay, so you talk about a long and proud history when it comes to the music scene uh, in the city and uh, Arcade Fire you just mentioned a second ago, just one of a long list of uh, artists who uh, went on from uh, Sneaky D and other uh local uh music venues to really uh, hit it big having said that though could sneaky d's perhaps be given a special designation should it be given i don't know eric some sort of like landmark status oh did we lose eric all right we'll pick him up uh here in uh, just a second because uh that is all of the uh, talk and the debate uh, right now as to uh Whether or not, uh, yeah, Sneaky D's should be given some sort of designation where you can't tear it down, you can't change it because of the uh, long history there, the long history of a music acts that uh, came through the doors there, played on that stage, as Eric was just talking about a second ago, you know, really, you know, sweated and toiled on that small stage and uh, others. I mean, it's a place of some significance when you talk about some of these uh, acts and uh, bands like uh, Arcade Fire. Eric's back with us. Uh, Eric, just before we lost you, I wanted to know whether you think Sneaky D's could have possibly get some sort of landmark designation and uh, not be torn down.
2: I would love that. I don't think it's possible, but I'll tell you something, though. This city, um, as much as I love it, has never really been kind to treating its history well. We're not very good at telling our stories, especially when it comes to music um, in relation to other cities like Nashville or New York. even London, England, where they have plaques in front of various destinations across their cities explaining the historical importance of a venue like this, who got started here, why it's so important culturally and economically to the city. I would love... To see more of that, actually, the last time that I looked into it for a certain venue in Toronto a number of years ago, it was in the thousands of dollars to have that um, to have it even thought of and looked at and, and planned out um, i, I don 't know how many venues would love to do that. Uh, or even have the wherewithal to do that, but I have a feeling that if the City of Toronto would start to reach out to certain venues saying, would you like this as part of our campaign to bring the city back to whatever the new normal is after COVID, there would be lineups.
0: Yeah, you know, Eric, that is such a great idea because you look at uh, something similar throughout the city, You know, out front of the Scotiabank Arena, there's uh, Legends Row. They've got the uh, Leafs on the bench, uh, you know, the greatest Leafs of all time in statue form. There's talk about erecting maybe a Kyle Lowry uh, statue in the not-too-distant future for the uh, Raptors. And why are we doing that sort of thing when it comes to our cultural and our music venues?
2: I I think we do an okay job of it, and that's not to knock... Mayor John Tory, I mean, he's been at various concerts and events throughout his his whole political life. He's also travelled along with other Canadians down to Austin, Texas, home of the South by Southwest Music Festival and Conference drumming up business. But Toronto is the third largest music market in North America after New York and Los Angeles. It's about time that we start treating it like it. And, you know, when you hear these cities going... Um, having problems like we all are across North America, but specifically the music venues, we may not be third for very long. We could actually drop out of that top ten, and that brings in business, that brings in music schools, that brings in a future, and I, you know, music fan or not, and I know we both are, I'm not so sure that this city can come back in a big way without entertainment being a, a huge part of it, and music certainly is going to be at the forefront. Look at what we did during SARS. We had one of the biggest concerts in the world's history with over 500,000 people coming back to Toronto to watch the Rolling Stones and Bachman and Turner and Sash Jordan and all these artists come. Music is going to be a big part of this economy coming back in the city of Toronto, but it won't unless we start caring about these venues that house these artists.
0: Now, we would be remiss if we did not mention it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, I just saw an article over the weekend that the El combo is ready to uh, reopen uh, this week. So there are some live uh, music uh, venues uh, that are up and running, if not thriving. But you do have to wonder. I mean, their future does kind of seem right now anyways tenuous at best.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, Heritage Canada has has definitely stepped up with with tens of millions of dollars um, worth of grants and loans that are available to music venues and uh, production companies. The City of Toronto, you and I have talked about that they've given over a million dollars to various venues in Toronto to just kind of starve this all off, just to make sure that, you know, that these venues don't just get, through it, but can actually get a little bit of a leg up because the music industry was one of the first things to get shut down during COVID and the live music industry is going to be one of the last ones to open up again.
0: Absolutely. Eric, appreciate the time as always, my friend. So good to talk with you. Thank you for this.
2: Great. Thanks for having me, Jeff. We'll talk
0: soon. You got it. Eric Helper, our music expert, and he's absolutely right about uh, live music. It uh, was one of the first that really got hit and it's going to be one of the last to come back. And a lot of that is due to our comfortability of being indoors and in crowds. And uh, certainly I don't think, you know, there's going to be a large number of people comfortable with that until there is a vaccine, a proven vaccine that uh, works. Uh, Having said that, the comfortability around COVID, though, and I don't know if it's comfortability or it's COVID fatigue, Seems to really be growing, right? Not only uh, in this city, but uh, we just carried a last hour of the premier's uh, press conference where he mentioned Toronto, Brampton, and Ottawa as the three real hotspots still uh, in the province when it comes to the uh, COVID numbers. And there is concern with the number now being at 400, nearly 400 new cases in the last two days. And just uh, wondering whether or not uh, that is really changing people's perspective once again and how they're going to go about uh, their business here in September and uh, into the fall. Because uh, I don't know about uh, Mary Rob, uh, get you guys in on this uh, conversation here, what you have witnessed or seen, but uh, I see a real lack of protocol, physical distancing. This is just cursory stuff that I've seen in and around the city and on the streets. And again, I don't know if it's just fatigue, comfortability that we've just uh, this new normal has become exactly that normal for folks uh, and for people. Maybe it's a combination of the two. Everybody is just tired, perhaps, of uh, COVID and just want to get back to living their lives.
3: Yeah I I think that there is a little bit of all of that and I certainly see when I look around um, people saying no we can have a big concert on the beach and you know other kids going back to or going to for the first time university so it's a whole new bubble if we use that term. Uh, Certainly people saying okay September is sort of that psychological reset. Let's get back to a routine. Well it's not it's it's not a routine and I think that Um, if we we continue the course, you know, we keep doing what we've been doing and not let our guard down, then things like these high numbers that spike at a wedding, what are we going to see when people are gathering, you know, at social events? And of course, the thing is, Everybody's going to be moving inside. So you got to double right. those efforts. Yeah, even... that
0: is the big concern, right? Because as yeah. the weather turns colder and eventually uh, winter and the snow gets uh, here, people are going to be indoors. There was a real hesitance early on, right, when the pandemic was first uh, declared there in uh, March that, uh, well, first of all, the distancing was happening. Never mind just 10 in your bubble. There was no such thing as a bubble first on. Now we've got that. Now we've got fatigue and a bit of comfortability with the uh, virus. You have to wonder, when the colder temperatures get here, if people are going to be moving these uh, gatherings uh, indoors and what that means when you add that with uh, back to school and uh, coming off the uh, long weekend. Again, nearly 400 new cases in the last uh, two days certainly concerning, but you have to believe those numbers are going to continue to go up. They're only
3: going to, I mean, I don't have a crystal ball, none of us do, but we can only guess that they are because everything is moving in a slightly different direction. And so what, as I've already stated, what really is required from us is more diligence and no, don't, it's not okay to hug that person that's even maybe in your bubble, like try and really Be as disciplined as you can, and it is so hard because we've all been dealing with us for so long, but we're seeing Monday the numbers go up, Tuesday the numbers go up, and many kids are still not even back in class yet.
0: Yeah, exactly, back here in the GTA, but of course university students are back, and you got to believe there's gatherings that are uh, going on there amongst uh, 20-somethings, and you know, if we do see these numbers continue to escalate, I don't know, Rob... How do you feel about that? Does it uh, kind of give pause for thought? Are you thinking about your daily routine? I know I am. I mean, I, I kind of kept the protocol. Like, I've been yeah. wearing a mask in public spaces in the building. When I walk my dog at night, I avoid everyone. But I notice that other people aren't doing that. So I, I feel like I haven't really changed. Yeah, uh, I don't know. This uh, Today, this has really hit me, this near 400 right, cases right. in the I, last I, two days. You know, I was a, maybe the person a month ago, like... Also, still going, oh my God, what are we doing, people? Like, you got to stay stay away. Yeah. So. Is this making you uh, rethink your daily routine at all, uh, Mary?
3: Oh, absolutely. Now, I'll share with you the fact that I live in a condo. So I walk out my door and I wear a mask. And it's just one of those things that's become, it took a while to get used to it. so many times I say, oh, I forgot my mask. Keep them everywhere, keep them with you. You, you know, you take your keys, you take your wallet, you take your phone take your mask and, you know, let's all try and work at this together as opposed to being against each other. Right. And I think maybe that might bring the numbers back to where they need to be.
0: Yeah, I hope so. Because I mean, honestly, you can find me one of three places, my residence, this radio studio or down the hall in the TV studio. And that's it (laughs) for right. That's the way I'm feeling right now. The golf course. Yeah. Uh, well, even that with, well, now that the cold weather's here, yeah, (laughs) it's over. But it does really, when you see that number, nearly 400 in two days, it really is sobering, isn't it?
3: It's a reminder.
0: To borrow a classic line from a classic ad from the 1980s, this is your brain, and this is your brain on space. That pretty much sums up a just-released report on how the human brain adapts to life in space. And for more on this, let's welcome in our space expert, Paul Delaney, joins us on Global News Radio. Paul, good afternoon. Hi there, Jeff. All right, this is some really fascinating stuff. From the findings, what really stands out to you?
4: Well, the good news, of course, is that the brain is, in fact, adapting to a brand-new environment. Of course, this shouldn't surprise any of us because any of us who have played a musical instrument or become really good at a sport, they know that the brain is a really adaptable instrument, and you you figure out what you need to do to be able to achieve certain levels of proficiency. It shouldn't surprise us, but now we have the evidence to show that in the weightless environment, which is obviously very different, than you know, hanging out here on the surface of the Earth, that with time, the brain changes so that you are able to embrace the new environment in a successful fashion. And even better, it returns back to normal when you return to uh, you know, the regular gravity environment. So it, it's three cheers for the brain as far as I can tell
0: Now, when you talk about changes, does it physically change the brain when it's in space or is this just psychological?
4: No, no, no. There are physical changes, uh, and now we're going to get into an area where it's not my expertise. My biology colleagues run ring, rings around me in this regard. But you know, basically, the the adaptability of the brain is is centered uh, in, in different parts. So you know, you've heard of right brain and left brain. Well, when you look inside the brain, there are very specific areas that cover motor functions, that cover uh, the audiovisual responses, and so on. So when we're talking about, in particular, motor responses in zero gravity, things are very different up there. You're not using the same visual cues as you do here on Earth. Up and down, for example, doesn't exist. Uh, you know, there are very specific areas of the brain that control those types of engagements, and those areas change most dramatically in zero G versus on the surface of the Earth. And they can see this now with, well, basically CAT scans. Uh, and those areas of the brain change uh, with, with, with more cellular activity. And, in fact, the physical location of the brain, it, it tends to move up a little bit uh, inside the, the cranium cavity. So there are many physical changes, real physical changes. These are not dangerous changes, by the way, but they are real measurable changes that take place for the brain in the zero gravity environment or the I should say microgravity environment not zero gravity microgravity environment
0: yeah again this is just so fascinating just such fascinating stuff and I'm wondering I want to get to what this means for space travel and space exploration but does this also maybe tell scientists here on earth paul something about the brain has it got a chance to uh, really enlighten us about the the brain, its composition, how it uh, functions, and maybe, I don't know, uh, give us a window or a door into treating brain disease and that sort of thing down the road? Do you think? Uh,
4: well, I'm, I'm going to be with you and say, with respect to sort of treating brain disease, this must give us some additional insight. Again, I say I'm I'm not a biologist. Sure. But any time you monitor any instrument, including the brain, and see how it changes with differing stimuli, with differing environments, it talks to you about how the brain is actually operating. So I am certain that these changes, which were obviously um, being observed primarily for spaceflight purposes, will have a very positive influence on the way brain research in general, you know, traumatic brain injuries... The brain is still very largely an unknown territory because, of course, it's completely encapsulated and, you know, it's very hard to get inside a living brain. I don't want to sound like Frankenstein or anything like this, but I mean, you, know, you, 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 can, you can only monitor it indirectly. Uh, so another way to see the change that is taking place, courtesy of the zero-gravity environment, we're seeing real physical change, and that must give us better understanding of the way the brain is operating.
0: That's why this study is just so groundbreaking. This research just uh, released into how the brain adapts and changes in space. So, Paul, what does this tell us when it comes to uh, space travel? Is this going to help us manage things like, I don't know, anti-gravity and motion sickness a little better? I think
4: motion sickness is going to be the the, the big winner here, shall we say. Uh, Astronauts, we've known for forever that when astronauts go into uh, orbit for prolonged periods of time, that there is, uh, not surprisingly, an adaptation period... For you know the human physiology to gain you know its its sea legs or its space legs. Uh, you we've often heard of people being motion sickness for you know sometimes days on end. Uh, changes in the eyesight because of course the pressure in the eyeball has changed in the zero, uh, in the microgravity environment. All those changes we try to mitigate primarily with drugs and exercise so that you know the person who is in the space station can now adapt to their environment, you know, in the least painful fashion. With the eve of space tourism, where many, many more people are going to be going into space uh, for, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, a few days, sometimes potentially a few weeks, we want to be able to uh, give them the greatest um, uh, satisfaction, if you will, and the greatest comfort level. And so monitoring how these changes in the brain are occurring uh give us ways to you know uh, affect the short-term uh deleterious effects of going into the microgravity environment so yeah big big pluses for space tourism big pluses for going for the astronauts going to the moon and potentially going to mars
0: well that was my next question my final question is there also uh, any keys here when we look at visiting and You know, eventually colonizing other planets, uh, such as uh, Mars. Here, is this telling us anything about that? That's going to give us, I know, greater success not only getting there but uh, maybe staying there.
4: Well, definitely the getting there. My bet is that even in the one-third gravity environment of Mars, the human brain will probably be, you know, very, very similar in appearance and activity compared to, you know, what we are here on Earth. But the zero gravity, the microgravity environment, that's the big change, and that's where you know monitoring how the brain is changing, looking at what, you know, the brain says, okay, I've got to do this, this, and this to get myself organized here. Well, if we can induce those processes, you know, medically uh, upon arrival in the microgravity environment, that's got to improve the chances of the astronauts, you know, being just that more capable in, you know, a shorter period of time. And when you're going to Mars for nine months, potentially, you know, that's a, that's a long period of time. You want your astronauts to be uh, in as great a state as they can almost from the get-go. So yeah, it's really, really good stuff. And we're going to see a lot more of this as we prepare to go back to the moon.
0: Yeah. Very cool and groundbreaking. Paul, thank you for the time and breaking it down for us. Much appreciated.
4: You're welcome, Jeff. Take care.
0: You as well. Paul Delaney, our space expert. And thanks, as always, for listening to our podcast. I'm Jeff MacArthur. Just a reminder that you can listen live each and every weekday from 1 till 3 on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.